Fulfilling the Dream, the fascinating story of modern Israel. I hope you've all enjoyed the journey. Tomorrow it comes to an end. I know, sadly. Shh. Hopefully you all received my 25 emails that because of the demand at the closing lecture, we're moving to the JCC auditorium across the street. So if you show up here tomorrow, there won't even be a cookie. There may be one leftover cookie. That's it. But if you come across the street, we will have our final program. Remember that from 6 to 7, we're having a private reception for those of you joining us on our Israel trip. Then from 7 to about 7.30 or more, we'll have a reception for everybody. And then we'll do our final program. You have to be there at 6. This is the way it is. You can come right from the pool, the JCC, the JCC pool where he's been hanging out. Um, this is the fourth. This is our last class series program. And this is the last of our evening series four-part series uh, about the prime ministers. We've explored three of them already. Tonight is Yitzhak Rabin, is that correct? And by my count, this is presentation number 29 for you. Of the public ones. We have, you know, we have donors who then take him out for lunch. Does that count as a lecture if you talk to them at lunch? No, you don't think? I'm going to get like charged to be like, Official programs, then the Brostov program costs this amount, the Cornell program costs this amount, the Brower program, and so on and so forth. Um, let's see. Uh, at our program tomorrow, we're going, to, we're going to recognize those of you who attended the most programs, so make sure you come, and I want a uh, signed affidavit uh, of how many programs you've attended so we can uh, see who did that. We're going to also recognize, I will tell you that I was counting where, did the, where in the world CSP hat landed up this past year, and it was in 50 different locations around the world. And tomorrow night you'll find out about some of those locations. Um, remember that um, because of his success here, um, and in a private meeting at breakfast with Rabbi Rick Steinberg, Rabbi Steinberg told uh, Professor Lips he's going to the Baltics, and um, now, um, the long story short is that Professor Lips will be the scholar in residence on the trip to the Baltics with Shir Hamalot. So if you have never been to Lithuania, Latvia, and or Estonia, you have your chance. And there's a flyer there of how you can do it. And you'll have Professor Lips to yourself um, every morning, well, with a few other people. And then you'll go and, and learn about where many of you come from. So the flyer is out there, and I'll email it as well. Uh, for those of you interested in going to Israel with us, we have maybe room for now two people. So uh, see me if you want to learn more about Israel 2020, our uh, third in our three-part series of exploring Israel and meeting with the people that are changing Israel um, on all different levels. And I think we're going to have dinner with you and Brenda on the first night in Tel Aviv. So that's a bonus as well. We have many programs coming up. Our, our 14th annual CSP adult retreat, February 16th through 17th. We have 50 people who will be attending, 60 at the dinner. If you don't know about it, would like to know more about it, see me or email me. And uh, as I mentioned many times, Daniel Matt will be here in March, March 13th to 15th. So uh, take a moment, and I, I have forgotten, and I've paid the price. Turn off your phones now, or put them on vibrate mode. This is it. This is your chance to be disconnected from the outside world, hear about something um, that you may know or may know a little bit about and learn more about from Professor Paul Lips all the way here from Tel Aviv going back in just a few days. Please join me in welcoming Professor Lips to the CSP stage. Thank you.
Israel is a very interesting professor of literature, Professor Alice Shalvey. Amazing, amazing woman, very deliberate in her thinking, uh, went out, a modern Orthodox woman, who refused to take the constraints of modern orthodoxy and uh, developed a number of amazing programs. She's had an important effect on many people. And um, one day a group of us were sitting in her lounge, very modest house in uh, Jerusalem, and she made the following comment, which she then included in a book she wrote. She says, for me personally, Rabin's assassination was the greatest tragedy of my life. So that's the topic. Um, Yitzhak Rabin had something very similar to Menachem Begin. Totally different in personalities, totally different in how they looked at the world, um, totally different in ideologies. Menachem Begin was a hardline right-winger. Rabin, by the way, wasn't a, a left person. He was very militaristic center. But with all that, both of them were unusual characters in Israeli history. Menachem Bergen, who, as I mentioned in the last lecture, spent much of his life in a situation of deep anger in relation to the Germans and never gave up on it, almost till his dying day, it was very hardline on some issues, very initially antagonistic towards the Arab world, signed the peace treaty with Anwar Sadat. That was an amazing event. For those of us who had seen Begin in that mode, seeing him getting on with Anwar Sadat, and they established a very nice contact. Enemies in unusual situations with unusual people can interact. I don't think it's the norm, but it happened. Yitzhak Rabin's the same. Hardline centrist, very military, as you're going to see, um, was, um, didn't take the easy line, as I'll be pointing out, in a number of stages that he was involved in. He, down, you know, the militarist as you can get. But he signed an agreement with someone he certainly didn't like, and that was Yasser Arafat. So in Israeli history, if we're taking our 12 prime ministers uh, in a larger context, it's very interesting that there are three who are considered the best. And I'll just give you the, the comment that I'm looking at. In April 2018, Haaretz newspaper, leftist newspaper, decided that they wanted to see how people in the country, um, intellectual people, not the regular people, it wasn't a poll of, of the regular. They, they took a, a group of very impressive political scientists and sociologists and international relations people and legal people. They took a group, not all their names were published, but I did hear who they were, 
from a vast range of political views. And it was a very important statement of how people in the know, I'm not saying average citizens aren't in the know, but it's a different level, different level of being in the know. And they tried to grade the 12 prime ministers of the country by a very sophisticated kind of system. And I want to point out that the people who graded these, the 12 leaders came from very, very different political points of view. Some were Bar-Ilan University right-wing lecturers. They, they, we, we see them being publishing all the time. It was a very good group of people. I must admit they didn't invite me, but I, <laughs> what can I do? I, I wasn't so sad, just a little. But I wasn't in the category of the people we're talking about. So they, they categorized the 12 leaders. Place in history, honesty, foreign affairs, courage, luck, attentive to people, economics, and charisma. Those were the divisions. Now, the three top people, three top prime ministers, comfortably the top three, firstly, David Ben-Gurion, who built the state. Secondly, and he got 8.53. The top was 10. So Ben-Gurion got 8.53. Menachem Begin got 8.04. And Yitzhak Rabin got 8.03. Rabin and Begin, totally different people, scored high in many realms. Rabin did exceptionally well in his place in history, his honesty, foreign affairs, and courage. And where didn't he do well? Not, no luck. Let's face it. Uh, um, low on attentive to people. He was good in small groups, but he wasn't a people person. He was low on economics, which he would have admitted, and he had almost no charisma. So I mention this because this is the third session, the last session, sorry. Ari, can it be the third and then I can have another one? <laughs> Ari says no. So. Golda Meir had her own talents, we discussed that as well, but she wasn't in the same group as these particular people, with all her talents. So what do we know about Yitzhak Rabin? Uh, just in terms of the text, uh, unlike the other texts that I've used, this one is different, because I quote tremendously from Itamar Rabinovich, Yitzhak Rabin, soldier, leader, and statesman, came out 2017, because I think this is really one of the best um, biographies that I think I've ever read. I know Itamar well. He was head of uh, my department at Tel Aviv for a long time. Um, he knew Rabin from all different perspectives. So he was a, a, a biographer who really got into the kishkas of, of Rabin, wrote this wonderful, wonderful um, <coughs> a biography. And so that's the one that I've, I've quoted. I mention, I give details of his book. Problem about Rabin, it's something a little bit different from Begin, but similar. Begin didn't write any autobiography, because at the time when he might have written it, he was in state of depression. Rabin unfortunately wrote his in 1979, too early to really understand the real person. So it's another person who appears there. Um, but Itamar Rabinovich's um, um, biography really it does it. 
for those of you who who um, were affected by Rabin's assassination, uh, on YouTube there's an hour and a half uh, YouTube of the funeral. And unfortunately, some's in some parts in Hebrew are not translated, but I think it's a good way of um, at least understanding how the world looked at him. So who's this this person who we? I have a watch, which Ari says I have to keep looking at, but I don't. Comes from a, an unusual family. His parents arrived there in 1917 from Eastern Europe. The mother, interestingly, was never a kind of convinced Zionist. She arrived there because of her husband, who was very convinced. Tragedy of the mother, and it's happened quite often with Israeli leaders, uh, his mother died, um, Rabin's mother died when he was 15. Quite a lot, when you look at the family life of a whole chunk of Israeli leaders, not talking only about prime ministers, but kind of people who were in top positions, particularly in the early stage, uh, it is interesting how many of them uh, didn't have um, parents with them uh, for all the time. The interesting thing about Rabin is that he was born in Israel. And until then, it was really a totally different generation, Yiddish-speaking people, by and large, uh, coming from Eastern Europe. So he was born uh, in, um, in Israel, and he went to an agricultural school. And here he never uh, got a degree. It's interesting, early Israeli leaders across the board were very, very well educated without going to university. It was quite an amazing phenomenon. They had all read stuff. You would, you know, listen to them speaking, you would see that, you know, they really had done, spent a lot of their time reading, but in many cases didn't have time to get to university. Life was running too fast. You could, couldn't take off time. And that was something quite clear. Begin in this case was different because he got a law degree. In, by 1941, Rabin is an, a military man. Totally, totally military. It's his total life. He will deny it in a speech that I'll read later. But his life was essentially in, in the military, in the Palmach. Um, he was very active. I won't go through all the events between 1945, essentially, and uh, 1948. But there are so many events that he is involved in in the military, military realm. Everything that's happening of importance, he's there. 1946, the British incarcerate the Zionist leadership. Just about anyone who's important, and I mentioned with Golda Meir, she wasn't incarcerated, and that allowed her to become one of the top people because other ones weren't around. She was capable as well, no doubt, but the, the, the black um, Shabbat Hashkora, a black Saturday, was really uh, important, and he was detained by the British for five months. However, you know, I've heard some interesting stories about that detention. They said that the people detained by the British never had such good time to speak to each other. So uh, it, it wasn't a depressing, they were constrained, it wasn't a, some sort of miserable, it wasn't a, a Soviet prison or something like that. The, the British did a different style. Um, and they probably gave them tea at four o'clock as well, just to make them sure that they're happy. The, uh, in 1948, in the war, he's very, very involved. 
different, different battlefronts and things, and also involved in the Altalena case. This is important. Altalena was the ultimate conflict between the left and the right. Altalena is the boat that comes to Tel Aviv. Uh, in the Israeli army, we used to kind of teach officers about the events of the Altalena because it was important for young Israelis to realize just how tense the political and militia situation was in the early period. And uh, the Altalena um, case was held against Rabin for most of his life. People on the hard right, I'm using terms without going into the intricacies of the political parties, people on the hard right um, always held that against him. And it, it was a very problematic issue. It was kind of one of those mini civil war situations when the Etzel, the right-wing militia, were on the boat and uh, the Haganah and the Palmach were on the sea, uh, on, on the beach, I mean, and Benachem uh, Begin was, was involved as well. But David Ben-Gurion had give the, given the instructions, don't allow them to unload all their arms and ammunition because that will go to the Irgun and we're trying to f fight a war as a combined army. Both sides have, have their own narrative and, and, and that remains true until Israeli today. At the end of the war, a number of things happened. January 1949, you start um, two things which are important. Firstly, David Ben-Gurion, looking at the formation of the Israeli army, was worried that even on the left, the two leftist militia, the Palmach and the Haganah, the, the Palmach were too independent. Remember, the Palmach had been pretty much close to a regular army. The Haganah had been a weekend army, a kind of reserve force. They would leave the kibbutz for a few days, have a bit of training, go back to the kibbutz. The Palmach was much more the early stages of a regular army, and they were much more uh, militarily active. And uh, Dave, what David Ben-Gurion did at the end of the war, January 1949, was slowly but surely remove the Palmach people out of the army telling them you, you're going to go nowhere, you've got no future, and the Palmach people left. Rabin was kept in. He was perceived by Ben-Gurion as being a different kind of person, so there was no attempt um, to kick him out of the, of the center. In that position, he started having negotiations at the Rhodes Armistice Talks. People who were with me last night, we spoke about it. Um, the island of Rhodes was the place where at the end of the Israel's War of Independence, Nakba for the Palestinians, um, they started discussing. No agreements were signed. Rabin at that time shows his political views. In negotiations, indirect negotiations with the Egyptians, he, he was the hardliner. He said no compromises with the Egyptians. In the end, it didn't quite go his direction. I'm saying it because we have to see Rabin is someone who has a very antagonistic attitude towards the Arabs, and he doesn't trust them. This is what very much we see from him at this stage of life. However, there's other side of Rabin which is fascinating. There was a, um, a rally for the Palmach leaders. In Israel, you have a lot of rallies, rememberings, kind of like the American University concept 
after you've been to university a certain time, you all get together and remember the good old days, but you probably don't remember the bad old days, but uh, then you all go home and happy. Uh, the, the military groups often do the same because it's, it's, it's the, the buddy phenomenon, mainly male, coming together. In the Israeli army, there were certainly women involved as well. Um, and uh, David Ben-Gurion was very worried uh, about this particular rally. Because once again, there were these tensions. The state is in a very, very early stage of development. I look at early state or it's something like a baby. You know, it, it, it's not formed. It, it, you really feel it very much in the early state. And, and Ben-Gurion um, said to uh, Rabin, because he knew what Rabin wanted to go to the rally, he said he invited Rabin to his place for dinner. I don't know if he asked Paula if that was okay. He didn't ask his wife too many questions, but he just turned up there. Rabin didn't go to Ben-Gurion's dinner. This is big stuff. This is the king. Remember in those days, it was the first king of Israel. Second, third. David, Solomon, Ben-Gurion, Bibi, four. So... <laughs> Ben-Gurion tried to stop him going to dinner, and he went, and then when asked, why did you go to the dinner, not by Ben-Gurion, other people said, why did you, you had an, opposition, uh, an opportunity to go and have dinner with the Prime Minister, you know, what are you doing? And he said the following, I had a sense of personal loyalty to friends, it was a matter of friendship, as a result of that, Ben-Gurion hindered his army success. Interesting personality, okay? Not what we might call politically astute. But friendship was a high value for him. So anyway, he carries on in, in the military roles, and um, he slowly but surely becomes an excellent military leader. They've done, the experts have done wonderful analysis of what he was doing. He developed a, a school of, for battalion officers. By the way, he looked back at the 1948 war and he said it was chaos, to use that wonderful Hebrew word balagan, okay? Chaos, shambles. And uh, he's looking back and he said, it's true we won the, uh, the War of Independence, but there were too many things that went wrong. And when we look at it, we see, if you might know, the, um, some of the battles on the way to Jerusalem, when you look back with hindsight, the lack of preparation, the lack of training, all those kind of things, you realize it. And therefore, when he was going up the totem pole, somewhat constrained by uh, Ben-Gurion's uh, anger, he uh, starts to develop, uh, develop the army in a tremendous way. And between 1964 and 1968, he's the chief of staff. He got there, without, uh, even with uh, Ben-Gurion's uh, restrictions. He planned the Six-Day War. I said to someone in one of the questions, you know, why did that happen? Why do people, I remember it was about Golda. Um, you know, why don't Israelis fully respect what Golda really did? And I said, history isn't always fair. And this is yet another case in Israeli history when it isn't fair. Rabin 
for all his career, was analytical, slow-moving, by the way. Any of you remember how he spoke? You could fit about four words between his two. Slow, deliberate, understated person. And he really does move the Israeli army to become an efficient modern army. Now, as a result of the Six-Day War, two things happened as far as Rabin's concerned. One is that he went for about a week or more than a week without sleeping. And he couldn't function at a certain time. Many years later, they would say, Rabin isn't a good leader. Look, he, can't, he wasn't even around. He had to go and sleep and things like that. Rubbish. This guy did amazing things. And the other thing is that Moshe Dayan certainly came out as the hero. The unfair nature of history, which we, we see in so many different situations. Um, in June 1967, he made his first of some very important speeches. By the way, he wasn't a speech maker. Did anyone meet Rabin? Anyone? He was here at a certain stage. So people, you know, quite a lot of people at various stages. I spent half an hour with Rabin. I was serving in the Israeli army in Sinai, southern Sinai. He came down. I, I just, I can't tell you what, what sort of, you know, this is the leader. He gets off the bus, and if I hadn't seen a picture of him, have you got your picture? If I hadn't seen a picture of him before, this is what he looked like when he was an older guy. He looked a lot, when I saw him in the 70s in Sinai, he, um, what we actually see, when he got off the bus, I hardly knew who the prime minister was. A whole lot of people get off the bus, and one guy gets off in the middle. And I'm standing next to Rabin, then it's the prime minister, and he's chatting with everyone. So, you know, are we supposed to salute the Prime Minister? He wouldn't have even known what we were doing. He just was with us for about half an hour, asking about the position, trying to learn what was going on. And the amount of people who've told me over the years that that's how he always was. He would go into a room and sit in the middle of the crowd. And they'd say, but there's a chair for you. Moi, to use French, which he never did. What's going on? He, he wasn't that way. And I remember that half hour in Sinai with him, just amazed at his, that kind of style. Because we know what political style is usually about. So he makes this speech uh, in June 1967 on Mount Scopus. Uh, he gets an honorary doctorate of philosophy. I'm just going to take small sections from a much longer speech. He speaks about the deep consciousness of the moral justice of their fight in the Six-Day War. He was concerned with morality. Should a politician ever go into politics if they believe in morality? You know, you wonder. And the speech is interesting in that second. Our warriors prevailed not by their weapons, but by the consciousness of a mission, by the consciousness of righteousness, by a deep love for their homeland. This is the military guy saying it isn't all about weapons. 
So it's so unusual. It doesn't seem to fit in with the kind of other parts we know about him. To ensure the existence of our people to its homeland, to live in its own state, free, independent, and peaceful. It's kind of a academic talks like that because they don't have to do anything with their words. But he's doing things with their words. It's a different kind of situation. He then becomes a UN ambassador, ambassador in, the, in the United States, um, in, in Washington, 1968 to 1973. And most of the people who had contact with him during those years said he was a highly effective ambassador. One, one of the best. We had some very good ambassadors. He was certainly one of the best. Uh, American Jews really found him an in interesting guy. He was someone they could talk to, they could relax with him. He wanted to learn English. He wanted to understand American politics. He'd said of himself all the time, I know just a little world. I haven't been in the big wide world. I've been in this little world of the military. This period in um, America was extremely important for him. Um, and once again, when he did make comments on Middle Eastern issues, he pretty much always had a hardline concept. There was the, the famous Rogers proposals. Right, he went against the government, even if Rogers, you know, the Secretary of State, he went against the, the proposals of uh, looking at the Middle East in a soft kind, a soft kind of way. Gets back to Israel um, after the Yom Kippur War, about the time of the Yom Kippur War, he played no role in it. Um, but it's also a time of tremendous crisis for the Labour Party. Uh, Golda Meir has been blamed for what went wrong in the, in the war. Um, she uh, uh, eventually resigns. Um, and between 1974 to 1977, Rabin is the Prime Minister. Not a good Prime Minister in his first round. No doubt about it. If you look at political events, not, uh, not a good uh, round. Part of what's going wrong is that because Rabin didn't have any political experience, and I think he was aware of it, he formed what was called the Troika, using the Russian expression. And the Troika consisted of three leaders, which is hard to run any situation. Uh, there was Yigal Alon, who at that time was um, Minister of Foreign Affairs, very capable man with a lot of uh, uh, political experience, and Shimon Peres, uh, who was um, uh, Minister of Defense. So the three of them kind of ran the country, but with Rabin being number one. He asked starts an issue which was probably the most problematic aspect of Rabin's life, and that was his relationship with his fellow politician, Shimon Peres. It is so difficult, and it was so problematic, that only when I read, read fairly recently, a few years ago, Itamar Rabinovich's uh, comment, did I really understand it. And I quote what Itamar says, because I think he captured the reality absolutely. He said the following. The first round of a joint journey, this was when they were together there, by two political Siamese twins that would last for 21 years. Twins who both disliked 
and appreciated each other, competed and partnered, eventually realized that they were joined by the hip and bound to collaborate with each other. The best description I've ever heard. They had to run things together. They both knew each other's talents, but they both detested each other. By the way, in Shimon Peres's autobiography, which is wonderful, beautiful autobiography, he doesn't quite deal with this particular aspect. Uh, it's also after Rabin's assassination, and he kind of understandably doesn't want to bring up uh, those, all those kind of issues. During his period as prime minister, 74 to 77, he, made, he starts to show us something else very important about himself and how he looked at the world. Firstly, his own party, the Labour Party, was in a situation of total corruption. It, some, without going into details, bad things were happening within the party. By the way, they had been in power since 1935. That's when the pre-state Labour Party really becomes an identified party. They call themselves Mapai, but it's the same as the Labour Party. And um, um, the, the things start going wrong. A corruption, a whole lot of different kind of things. And the image of the Labour Party at the time that Rabin was Prime Minister was very, very problematic. But what seemed to be even more difficult for Rabin to deal with, and this he writes about in his, in his memoirs, is his great fear of the Israeli right. Just to try and put this into the context, 1967, with the large new biblical lands under Israeli control, the right wing developed, without doubt, the most effective extra-parliamentary pressure group that Israel has ever seen called Gush Emunim. Some of you must know about it. Gush Emunim, very, very effective. It was an extra-parliamentary pressure group which, which, which used remarkably astute concepts, particularly this idea that if you want to convince people which land belongs to us, you take Tanakh, you take the Bible, and you walk the land and you quote wherever you go, you open the pasuk, you open the section, and you quote. So it's not just a general idea. And this captured vast numbers of Israelis for whom the land of Israel is not the state of Israel per se, but the biblical land of Israel. Territory is the essence of where they're living. Now, how did Rabin see this? And he makes this comment, he writes this in his memoirs, 1979, when he wrote it. It's very strong language. I see in Gushemonim one of the greatest threats to the state of Israel. It is not a settlement movement. It is a cancer in Israel's social and domestic fabric, a manifestation of an entity that takes the law into its own hands. Now, you must remember, if from the right-wing perspective, the, let's call them the hard right, from the hard right perspective, this is the man who first, on the one hand, was involved in the Altalena case, which killed 16 members 
of the right-wing Irgun. And here he's calling us, and they saw themselves as the ultimate Zionists, calling us a cancer in the uh, reality of the society. I mention this because this will clearly become uh, relevant uh, as we go on. During the time he was uh, prime minister, although I say he wasn't a successful prime minister, a number of things happened. There was the interim agreement with, with Egypt after the Yom Kippur War. There was starting a disengagement between Egypt and, um, and Israel. There are some people who maintain, as a result of that interim agreement, afterwards Menachem Begin could sign an agreement with the Egyptians. That means the process had started that kind of the hard concrete wall between sides somehow seemed to be somewhat broken as a result of the, uh, of the interim agreement. Um, there was the Israeli-Syria uh, disengagement. Parties who disagreed with each other disengaged after the Yom Kippur War, removing uh, sides, no, not peace. But in the situation of no peace, which I've maintained on many occasions, it doesn't have to be a peace agreement. Something on the ground breaks certain images. And part of tensions is how to, someone used an interesting comment the other day, it's like a wall with a little hole in it where the light comes through very strong. I like the image. I think I might use it for myself. The, um, he was involved with the Entebbe event, a very getting the hostages back, successful, but he fell. And let's see why he fell as a prime minister. Because he had an, uh, his wife, Leia Rabin, had an illegal dollar account of $20,000. Even at that time, it was forbidden in Israel, by the way. It was forbidden to have foreign currency, which meant you built your house and made sure that a few of the tiles in the lounge had a hole underneath. Just so you have easy access to dollars. There was no such thing as Israelis who didn't have dollars. And if you didn't have dollars, wherever you went, you find an Israeli or someone who's living there, and you exchange currency. It was, to use that lovely Hebrew word, shtuyot, crazy, stupid. But that was the society and the government. There was a problem of foreign currency. And it really, in many cases like this, um, there was a, an agreement with the government. It, it, it wasn't a criminal offense in the, in the real sense. It, it, a misdemeanor. And you could pay. But Rabin resigned on that. For him, this was, as a prime minister, you cannot be a prime minister if you have something against you, and you're guilty of something. I'm not saying anything about modern Israeli <laughs> politics. Um, the other thing was that some jets arrived on Shabbat. He hadn't quite paid attention to it. He wasn't involved with the exact date that a jet would come or not. But once again, he took the responsibility. By the way, two le three leaders have done that. Golda did that with the Yom Kippur War. Menachem Begin did that with the Lebanon affair when things went wrong in Lebanon. And Yitzhak Rabin, all three of the people we've spoken about, um, all took total responsibility. So between 1984 and 1990, he's defense minister. 
pretty flexible. He's, it's, it's a time of changing prime ministers, pretty uh, um, insecure period of Israeli history. Um, and uh, what he writes about that period when he's defense minister and Perez was prime minister for a bit, in his uh, memoirs, the Hebrew version, by the way, not translated into English, surprisingly, he went into a very, very angry attack on Perez. The Siamese twins concept that Itamar Rabinovich wrote about, he gets stuck into Perez because he wants all Israelis to know that the guy he's attached to and has to work with, he just doesn't like. Now, Israelis are not very good at politically correct language. So when the Israelis read it, it sounded okay. I'm sure when they thought of translating it for the wider English-speaking audience, it's not suitable to say that sort of thing. It's very, very sort of part of a, of a certain language which we have in, uh, have in our country. Um, he, uh, as a defense minister, um, he had to deal with the whole question of Lebanon. This was a very tough stage. It was our Vietnam War. I think the closest we've got, the term was often used, the Israeli-Vietnam War. And um, he, he very much favored withdrawal from Lebanon. And he, in fact, was largely responsible. The war had started in 1982. From 1984, there was a part withdrawal. And then it took some time afterwards before the sort of a... a, a little barrier area, all the soldiers eventually came home. But, but we see that he didn't, he, thought, he saw uh, Lebanon as a major uh, problematic issue. During his period, there's something which affects him even more. And that's the first intifada. Everyone know what the word intifada is? Everyone's aware. Just if you aren't aware, it was the first Palestinian uprising. Very, very angry uprising. Terrorist attacks, buses blowing up in Jerusalem, I so remember. Um, it was a very, very tough period. And uh, Rabin's Minister of Defense. And he makes a comment, which like Golda's famous comment of the black, Jewish, Israeli Black Panther organization, that they're not nice boys, which rever rev reverberated through the world in Israeli society, he made a comment which I think, and he said it was misunderstood, and I do believe him in this. He used the comment, we'll break their bones, speaking about the Palestinians. Now, that sounded awful, but he was in his, also saying, we don't want to kill them. So it's a tough situation. That you, we, you know, so easy to forget. It was tough in Israel during the first intifada. I remember almost no tourists. It was true with the second intifada as well. Uh, where we lived in Jerusalem, the only tourists we saw, to be honest, were the German tourists. Quite an amazing situation. It was really a tough time, and Rabin was at the core of this battle with the Palestinians. Very, very powerful kind of situation. And he was seen as the super military man. He was going to solve it, so it seemed, only by military means. That's what it's all about. You can only win in the Middle East if you're tough and if you show it. Political changes went on. 
1992, uh, he was elected for his second term as prime minister. Now, the core of the second period is the Oslo Accord. You must remember who we're talking about. Tough, military guy, spent most of his time in the military. When he wasn't in the military, he was Minister of Defense, except for the short period that he was Prime Minister. And then comes this massive question. Why did he agree to the Oslo talks? Now, the Oslo concept which is the idea that we can, in fact, get on with the Palestinians. Very convoluted way of getting there. For those of you who were with me last night in uh, Anaheim, I was talking about it. <clears throat> he, something happened to him. And one wonders what it is. And in trying to understand when leaders change what they seem to be, not always easy to know exactly what it is. But most of the people who were close to him and listened to him talking and chatting said that what really upset him about the situation with the Palestinians was that it was destroying Israeli society. And he saw it in the field he saw young Israelis coming from regular Israeli society, city people, we're not talking about people who were living in the territories, city boys, being totally ruthless in dealing with the Palestinian population. And they were often frightened. Had two sons in those situations. Um, And it seems to be that his way of looking at the world changed because until then, while he had this very critical approach to the Gushimonim group, which I mentioned, it seemed to be that now he asked the tough questions of Israeli society. What do we do with the two and a half million Palestinians under our control? Do we carry on being their masters, their rulers? And therefore, <clears throat> some months before, Shimon Peres, foreign minister, Yossi Balin, uh, Mankal, the, um, what do you call the top civilian in a top civil servant, I can't think of the term in English. He, he, was, he was the top civil servant in the, in the foreign ministry. Um, director general, sorry, director general. He's a director general in the foreign ministry. They start trying to work through Norway. The Norwegians were given too much, there's a move, apparently a play on it, about how wonderful the Norwegians were. The Norwegians were the intermediaries. But be it as it may, the starts of initially a totally secret process by two academics, Ron Pundak, who's still very involved, and one of my best friends, Yair Hirschfeld. They start doing this process, and Yair is going back and forwards, 
And uh, whenever I try to phone your ear, his wife would say, he's not home now. And the next day, he's not home now. And the next day, he's not home now. Understand your ear. Interesting guy. He's doing something very interesting. Actually, of Austrian origin. Has contacts with certain groups in Europe. Didn't know exactly what, but it was clear that was happening. The four of them, Perez, Yossi Balin, Ron Pundak, and Yair Hirschfeld, eventually go to Yitzhak Rabin and say there's a chance that we're going to be able to move forward with the Palestinians. Rabin is initially unimpressed. This is the military guy. This is the guy who's been spending time controlling the Palestinians during the Intifada, just a few years earlier. Slowly but surely, he's beginning to ask himself what I believe till today the most challenging issue of Israeli society, what's going to happen with the Palestinians? Not so much. Israelis aren't so worried about the Palestinians. Those Israelis who are worried are worried about Israel. What happens to Israel? Many Israelis aren't worried about it. We have to be honest. Country totally split. Totally split on this issue. But Rabin belongs to the group who's beginning to ask what's happening to Israel as a result of being in their lives. Now, Diane had a, a, an earlier plan. He said, we'll be in the territories, but we won't be in their faces. He had lots of different mechanisms, allowing open bridges over the Jordan River, trying not to get too involved in their lives. But as time goes by, and you're building settlements, and you're building certain roads which the Palestinians are not encouraged to go there, it becomes a new kind of situation. So he slowly but surely agrees to the Oslo Accords. I don't want to repeat the whole story because some of you were with me last night and Ari said I can't repeat any lecture. <laughs> but the Oslo Accords which I was involved in the very, very early stage, was something unbelievably confusing. And I had a very small role, not, no importance, but influential for me, that five of us were asked overnight, a late night call, to go to uh, the officers' training college on the outskirts of Jerusalem and explain to the army officers what Oslo 1 was all about. It was called Gaza Jericho Now. It was a four-page document. We arrived, we were, cabs used to pick us up in the morning. We went up to the officer training school, five of us. We're sitting in the, in the office of the commanding officer. He gives us the text. The text hadn't been published yet. So we quickly go through the four pages. And then all of us do exactly the same. It was quite interesting. We all go back to the first page again to see what we've missed. We go through the four pages and we all say exactly the same thing. We don't understand it. It's a non-understandable document. You can look at it. Internet, Oslo 1, Gaza, Jericho. Now, you'll see that gives some sort of ideas. And the most important part of it is we, we want to do ABC as part of negotiation. We want to do CFF as part of negotiation. You don't know really where it's going. So what we did was the only thing we could think of. We handed out, we went into our different rooms um, with these young officers, one, wonderful young officers. And we thought we were going to be very clever, 
We didn't want to tell them that we don't understand it. We gave them the piece of paper. We said, look, we don't want to influence you. I remember how we said it. I'm still embarrassed, but what can I do? I've been embarrassed so often in my life. Once more. So embarrassed, we said, well, we don't really want to influence your ideas. We only advise us. You know, we come in and we go home. You guys have to implement it, which is true. The army had to implement these, uh, the Oslo Accords. So we say, take your time. And five of us leave. We carry on drinking our coffee, which was then cold. Uh, and we wait. So we extend the time, and one or two come in, say they're finished. We say, just try a little bit more. We go back into the room, all, all five of us, to all find exactly the same situation. These guys who take their jobs very seriously, the burden is on them. When they have to start carrying out orders of the government, you have to know what you're doing and why you're doing it, and you have to be on the side of where your orders are. Otherwise, you can't do it. It's too difficult especially in, when you're dealing with civilian populations. So they all say to us, we've tried very hard, but I'm afraid we don't understand. <laughs> I've, I've got a, all of us have um, selective memories. I have a selective memory because I don't know what happened from 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. <laughs> on that particular day. But at 5 p.m., the cabs came, came to pick us up, and that was, that was what happened over there. Later on, there was Oslo II, which is a massive, massive book. Fortunately, after some months, it was translated into English because it was impossible to read. It was a, a, a serious document of where different areas, and that was the, if you, any of you remember, was the ABC concept. Area A were Palestinian cities, which were independent. Area B were combined Israeli-Palestinian areas, and Area C was Israel. So that was the, the ABC concept. And um, this brought about the signing of the agreement, the, um, the relationship between Rabin and Arafat, if just many of you can remember the picture on the White House lawns, where Arafat is on the one side and Rabin's on the other. And I've never, I've been over those pictures again and again, YouTube. You see, it's as if Rabin has a, someone pushing his arm <laughs> because that hand doesn't want to go. It doesn't want to shake Arafat's hand. It just doesn't want to. And eventually, by some superior power, it, it moves there. Just amazing, and you see his face, and you just, everything you know him. What does he say about Arafat? What do we know that he felt about Arafat? He said, not hate, but he had some other words. Disgust, unease, ambivalence, apprehension, and lack of enthusiasm. I think we get his feelings. But he says, slowly but surely, there was some level of growing trust. He never trusted him completely. Um, as a result of Oslo, Israel's international standing reached a level that until today we haven't seen. Um, by, uh, after a short time, uh, two years after the first stage of Oslo, we had diplomatic relations with 150 countries. There are 196 countries in the world. 
countries were coming in. Countries wanted to be with Israel. So many of them, like 50% of Israelis, asked very serious issues about the Palestinians. And an unmentioned agenda item of Israeli society. Which 50% of us think about, 50%, as far as they're concerned, not very important. Two competing narratives. At the, 19, at, at the Nobel Peace Prize uh, ceremony, um, Rabin made a beautiful speech. And I'd like to read a chunk of it. At the tender age of 16, I was handed a rifle so that I could defend myself. And also, unfortunately, so that I could kill in an hour of danger. That was not my dream. I wanted to be a water engineer. Peace will triumph over our enemies because the alternative is grimmer for all of us and we will prevail. We will prevail because we regard the building of peace as a great blessing for us and for our children after us. I am the emissary of generations of Israelis, of the shepherds of Israel, just as King David was a shepherd. I am the emissary of poets and of those who dreamed of an end to war, like the prophet Isaiah. And I'm also the emissary of the children who drew their visions of peace. Kids were drawing little pictures all around the country. And of the immigrants from St. Petersburg and Addis Ababa. With me here are five million citizens of Israel, Jews and Arabs, Druze and Caucasians, Five million hearts beating for peace and five million pairs of eyes which look to us with such great expectations of peace. The Lord will give strings to his people. The Lord will bless his people, all of us, with peace. This is the military man. This is the military man. It was quite unbelievable as an Israeli listening and realizing that this is Yitzhak Rabin. Um, his assassination um, was uh, the major crisis for many of us in Israel. Um, bigger than wars. It was unbelievable. Um, see, this was this, to use the image that Roman told me about the other day, this was the little light through that closed wall. Just another way of trying to understand what might be able to be done. As I've mentioned on many occasions in the time we spent together, um, before this stage, but very much as a result of this stage, 
um, it moved me to another place in a little way, trying somehow or other to move things forward. Some of my friends are much more active, much more effective than me, but for a lot of people who were in our social environment, were very much affected by this. The assassination came after an awful period in Israeli society, one of which the Din Rodef in Judaism, which is translated into the law of the pursuer, says, he who gives away parts of the land of Israel will be he who kills him first is rewarded. So kill whichever leader makes territorial compromises, and for killing that leader, you will be rewarded. You know, Judaism isn't all about the nice things of life. There was a sense of hate in the country, which I've never experienced before. Threats, anger, big demonstration in Jerusalem, Bibi was giving a talk where there were pictures of Rabin in an SS uniform, face put into the SS uniform. There have been tough times in Israel, but this, I think, was the worst of the period that I'd been in. People who had been in a, in a long time in Israel said it was even worse in the pre-state period when there were deep, deep divisions, but this is what we understand. Um, Rabin's last speech, um, permit me to say, I too am moved. I wish to thank each and every one of you who has stood up here against violence and for peace. This government, at whose head I have the privilege to stand, together with my friend Shimon Peres, inverted commas, Shimon Peres writes in his autobiography, that evening, Rabin and I became best friends. <laughs> Interesting. The government at whose head I have the privilege to stand, together with my friend Shimon Peres, decided to give peace a chance. I was a military man for 27 years. I fought as long as there was no chance for peace. Today I believe that there is a chance of peace, a good chance. I have always believed that the majority of people want peace and are prepared to take risks for peace. And you here at this massive rally, a rally by showing up for this rally, prove that along with many who did not get here, that the people truly want peace and oppose violence. Violence is eating away at the foundations of Israeli democracy. It must be condemned, denounced, and isolated. And a very short time later, as he descended the steps, he was assassinated. Um, <clears throat> just a few words on how Rabin is looked at. Firstly, the funeral was amazing. 80 heads of state. It was an unbelievable event, living in Israel, by the way. We lived in this tension. 
between those of us who were upset. Not all Israelis were upset. Some were delighted. But for those of us who were upset, we would hear the stories of heads of state traveling on some important mission and almost turning the plane around in midair. I think they landed and then they turned around, hopefully. So it, it was this amazing, amazing situation. Um, Clinton's speech, among the others, was amazing. Um, King Hussein was there. Uh, many, many uh, leaders, Hosni Mubarak was there from Egypt. A quite an unbelievable situation. Just to try and conclude what we might say about him, and to quote a few people, Amos Oz, the writer, writes of him as as follows. By the way, they were good friends. A logical, skillful captain, a careful engineer, and a precise navigator. His personality embodies the spirit of a new Israel, the country seeking not redemption, but solution. Amos Oz, anyone spend time with Amos Oz? Yeah. Delightful guy to spend time with. Remember, a few of us were with his, at his house uh, in the south before he moved uh, to the center of the country. Um, a little a bit like Golda Meir, Golda's kitchen. Golda used to make tea for the important people. Amos brought us tea and cakes. Um, Kissinger spoke of his integrity, Rabin's integrity, integrity and analytical brilliance in cutting to the core of the problem, and this was awesome. Um, he was, as I said at the beginning, quiet, modest man. Um, I must admit, in the half hour I spent with him, he didn't shake my hand, but people who did shake his hand said he always shook it very softly. You know, it was just how you shake a friend's hand. Kind of don't, you don't have to show anything. You know, you sometimes see these leaders and they, who's more macho? N not this guy, really not this guy. Um, he had a close relationship with someone like Yossi Sarid, who's a defined leftist. Very much disagreed with each other. But they had this close relationship. Um, he is remembered, and this I conclude, as much as by any other group in Israel, by the Israeli Arabs. When you speak, when, when one speaks to any of the Israeli Arabs, you're not talking about day-to-day -day politics, and you get into a serious discussion, and you ask them, when were the good times each and every one says the same thing. And it's a word you hear with Jewish society as well. To quote one of my friends who I consult with to understand what's really going on internally with Arabs, this was our golden period. Thank you very much. Questions, comments, please, yeah. Please make sure it's questions and not statements because I won't allow you to go to sleep. There was one other reason that I understand as to why he signed the Oslo agreements. 
And that is they understood back then that the real existential threat was Iran. And what they wanted to do, at least here in Shimon Peres, was to create a buffer zone. The peace already existed with Egypt. It was in the middle of the treaty with Jordan. So if they could get peace with the Palestinians, they would create a buffer zone against the Persian Iran. As far as I know, that thesis came out later. Came out later. Because I think there was a real attempt to try and explain the change. And I think there were a number of possibilities, by the way, that came out afterwards. I don't know if he had that, um, that kind of understanding of the Middle East. Shimon Peres had a better understanding of the Middle East. So, you know, I could possibly say that as being a Shimon Peres idea, which maybe Rabin came into at some time. But at the time itself, that wasn't, but it could be. You know, it, it, I'll tell you one of the problems of essentially modern politics. Until certain documents are published, secret documents, we don't know. So, you know, that may well be. I, I've heard people saying it, but I think the, the real evidence will, will sometime or other come out. And, you know, maybe we don't always understand everything about a human being. People have certain ideas. They, they don't necessarily always spell it out. But it's certainly a possibility. Uh, you spoke last night about peace depending so much on common interests. And then you said today that Rabin really sought the peace because he thought it was ruining Israeli society. So... Under different leadership, do you think it would be possible for the Arabs to also realize that it's ruining their society and this could be a basis for self-interest? I'm sure you can have people like that. By the way, that was part of Sadat's idea as well. Sadat thought that he would get back the, the Sinai, but he saw it was good for Egyptian society. And, and there was... As we know, people in Egypt who didn't agree with it. So I think it's yes. I think it's well possible. You know, I don't think, I don't think. You know, I used to have a, a comment that I always used to say: never say never. And that's my basic approach to history. People have said never, never, never. I just say have a long life. I'll help you to have a long life because you might want to change your mind at some time. So I, I do believe that. You know, I, I, I don't think. You talk about intractable situations, but even in those, I don't know if there's a never to it. It's just that while we're looking at it in our contemporary life, we can't imagine it. So my view is that things can change, and, and it's leadership and situations and trust, as you say, all those things. Things are possible to change. You know, I look at society as much as I do to human, as human beings. Human beings change. They can be A, B, C, D. I'm not saying everyone changes, but there's a possibility for all of us to change. My wife tells me that every morning. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the uh, Rabin assassination. Uh, what impact did this have on the relations between the Haredi and the uh, non-Haredi Jews in Israel? Haredi. No, Haredi, sorry, I didn't hear. Uh, Haredi, uh, they were not particularly involved in this. Um, their involvement in politics is very narrow, it's a, and it's essentially done through their political leaders. 
So we, we don't see them as an integral part. It's also quite early. Remember, it's um, you know, over 20 years ago. So at that, now they are more involved, but at that particular time, they weren't, they weren't really involved. Some of the Haredim were, uh, incidentally, at that big demonstration in Jerusalem, but there were many other people as well. So I, th I think at that time, the, Israeli, the Haredi group are less political than we might see them uh, today. We've got, was that one or two? <laughs> so I'll just go here. Speculate, if you could, what might have happened had he not been assassinated. Oy vey, oy vey, gewalt. I will speculate. I will on this, because I feel so strongly. We would have had peace with the Palestinians. On that, I speculate. That I speculate. Because the Palestinians, as Abba Eben said, and he was right, they never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. But this might have been an opportunity that they didn't want to miss. And I think history would have gone another way. The problem was that Perez wasn't Rabin. Perez couldn't influence the society like Rabin had. Rabin had a, had a, a, a curriculum vitae, a bio, that was so impressive that even people who disagreed with him had to take him seriously. A situation which we can't say about Shimon Peres. So that's what I would surmise, but you know, how does one prove how anyone surmises? But that's my gut feeling. And maybe that's what I want to believe. So who knows where my logical side and my motive side, which controls. But I do think it, that could happen. Yeah. Was uh, just, just a question, not a statement. Was Arafat similarly a singular figure like Rabin in so far at that moment in time going from a military fighter mentality to a peace mentality? And by the same way we floundered by Rabin's passing, have we also now, on the Palestinian side, floundered because there's no Arafat? The <clears throat> psychological analysis of Arafat, quite honestly, remains very confusing. A lot has been written about him. He is not a well-understood figure in society. And quite honestly, I don't... <clears throat> excuse me. Sorry. See, that's why you only gave me 31 lectures. My voice is going. The, um, I don't know the answer to that. And it's been discussed often. People have tried to understand him. Um, his, uh, the people who were close to him, Saeed Arikat and people like that, have not said a lot about him. So, you know, because of that, because we know people who knew Rabin and spent time with him, we can make some character analysis. Of the stuff that I've read, and the people who I know, Yair Hirschfeld, my friend, spent time with Arafat, even he's very, very confused until today about what Arafat really is. So I don't think I can give an answer. Thank you very much. Good night.
So we have finished our class series, which is, if you're keeping track, it's 11 classes in uh, a little less than 30 days. More importantly, I counted how many cookies you guys have eaten over 10 classes, <laughs> and it's 500 cookies. Some of you ate more than others, but the good news is no more cookies after tomorrow night for a long time. Have a good evening, and we'll see you tomorrow night.